0: This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 57.
1: Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell
0: Schreiber. Hello and welcome to the show. Today we have Christy and Bryce who are Canada's youngest retirees. Christy retired at 31 while Bryce was 32. And today I pick their brains on how they pulled it off, how they invest and how they structure their investment portfolio to ensure that they never run out of money. Now, I'm a huge fan of these guys. Christy has actually been my rock in helping me pull the trigger on her own early retirement, so I'm eternally grateful for that, as it is pretty scary leaving a steady paycheck in your 30s with two kids to support. So uh, Christy, if you uh, do listen to this episode, thank you for that. You've been uh, really helpful and uh, have definitely decreased the (laughs) the nervousness when it comes to all that. Now, uh, Christy and Bryce have also just launched a new book on how to retire early, and in it, they share a repeatable step-by-step plan on how anybody can retire early. It's a very practical book. I really enjoyed it and I wish it was around when I started my FIRE journey. And in case you're This is your first time hearing that term. FIRE stands for financial independence. Retire early, and it's actually becoming a pretty big movement worldwide at the moment. So their book is called Quit Like a Millionaire, and I have some copies to give away to you as well. So if you do want to sign up for free to be entered into the draw, just go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash giveaway, all one word. That's buildwealthcanada. .ca/giveaway so you can just enter your email there and you will automatically be entered into the draw Now this is a pretty in-depth interview so I really think you'll like it but before we dive in I want to let you know about a new free guide that I published on the top ETFs in Canada for 2019. It's something that's been repeatedly requested by listeners of the show and just an FYI that if you're listening to this episode years from now and it's not 2019 anymore then just know that I'll be updating this guide annually so you can always get the top ETFs for Canadians no matter when you're listening to this particular episode. Now In the guide, I go over what I personally invest in, why I invest in it, and the investments that I talk about are literally where we have almost our entire net worth. It is what we are primarily living off right now in early retirement. So I figure at the very least, you'll learn about some great ETFs to consider for your own portfolio. And if you are new to ETFs, then I'll give you a nice list of some top ETFs to consider from the thousands that are out there. I know it can be pretty overwhelming for people just getting into this because how do you know which one to pick? And so at least this way, you have a nice sort of base starting point of ETFs to consider, all right? So I'm making this guide available for free to any listeners that use my special link to sign up for a free savings account with... my favorite bank and the bank that i use which is eq bank and for long-term listeners, if you've already signed up to EQ Bank through my link in the past, then just send me an email and I'll send the guide over to you. Now, the reason that I personally use EQ Bank is that they have one of the highest interest rates in Canada. So in all the years I've been with them, I haven't been able to find a higher interest rate anywhere. Uh, plus, it's free to sign up and keep an account with them. So you're not paying a monthly fee like you do with many of the other banks out there in Canada. And you also get unlimited free Interac e-transfers as a bonus, which is super convenient whenever you need to send somebody money money so because of those reasons i've been with them ever since they launched in canada many years ago and it's where i actually keep my entire emergency fund and my spending money as well so basically just about everything of mine that isn't being invested in etfs goes directly into my eq bank account to earn me the high interest while you know the money is insured it's secure there it's totally safe so i always have that available but i'm at the same time also earning some nice interest and just to put things in perspective when i recorded this their savings plus account automatically gives you 23 interest and that's an ongoing rate not some temporary promotion that you see some of the other banks do and while many of banks in canada are actually offering one percent or less so in other words by using the bank that i use you could actually double the interest that you're getting from your checking and savings accounts for free plus you're getting those unlimited interact e-transfers and this is why i've been using and recommending them for years to anybody that's asked and then eventually after recommending them for so long i approach them and asked them if they want to sponsor the show so uh because i'm kind of recommending them anyway uh um, So to get the free high interest account and the free guide on the top ETFs in Canada, just go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash eq. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash the letter e and the letter q. Open the free account and once you're done, forward any email that you get from eq to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca and I'll send you the full comprehensive guide for free. So that link again is buildwealthcanada.ca dot ca slash eq to open an account and then forward me any email that you get from eq to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca and i'll email you the free in-depth guide all right so enjoy thank you for supporting the show in that way and for using that link and now let's get into the episode all right christy bryce welcome to the show hello thank you so much for having us hi there well really excited to have you guys on uh to kick things off can you guys tell us your story and how you were able to retire in your early thirties,
2: sure. Okay, uh, so we're Christy and Bryce, and um, so we used to live in Toronto, which, as everyone knows, it's one of the most expensive cities to live in in Canada. Um, so we were both working as computer engineers and doing what everyone else was doing, including our peers. Uh, so what we were trying to do was save up enough money to buy a house, and do you know what the normal thing, which is work until you're sixty-five, uh, retire with a pension, and just be normal go go down the straight and normal path uh what happened in 2010 after we got married is that we started going around at open houses and looking for a place to buy and what we found was that as soon as we walked in the door for a lot of those open houses you, you could see the real estate agent kind of sizing us up and you know she's kind of saying like are you sure you can afford this place like look at you guys so you know, at that point I was like, okay, this is, you know, this, this market's definitely uh, a seller's market. Let, let's, let's continue looking and see what happens. And then, and then the bidding war started before you even, you know, put in your bid, the The house is already sold. And then I started noticing that dilapidated houses in our neighborhood uh, were being snatched up by developers for 400 grand. And I'm talking about dilapidated, like they're, you know, things are falling apart. It's, it's scary. There's like holes in the backyard. For some reason there is like, you know, signs talking about UFOs on the windows or something. So that house ain't not right. Um, and then that house, you know, gets picked up for 400,000 and then gets, you know, some developer comes over, slaps on some paint, does like half ass job. And then a month later it gets flipped and sold for $800,000.
1: Now, we knew that house was a crap hole yeah. and that the person who, who won, quote unquote, won that bidding more, just signed up for a world of hurt. Uh-huh. This was the housing market in Toronto in, uh, in 2010. I'm not sure what it is now in 20, uh, 2019, but it was just this predatory Ponzi scheme. And at that point we were just kind of like, you know what? We don't want to play.
2: Yep. I don't want to be part of this. Um, so I really started to question whether it makes sense to put all of our life savings into a house. Uh, and then down the road, uh, it was there was this moment that was basically like the mo- my aha moment that woke me up from this normal path of buying a house and working until you're 65 is when I saw one of my coworkers um, collapse and almost die at his desk from overwork and stress. And he actually had to be rushed off to the hospital. And the doctor said that if he had been rushed off just half an hour, or an hour later, he would have been dead. Hmm. Uh, so then at that point I started looking around, there was more and more layoffs. There was more and more instability at my job. And then I started to realize, you know what, a job, thinking that a job is going to take care of you until you're 65, that path no longer works. I mean, the advice that we've been given by our parents and the, you know, tried and true path of buy a house, work until you're 65, that might have worked back in the eighties, but it no longer works. Like our jobs don't exist until 65. We can't just wait for a pension and houses are not extremely affordable like it was for our parents. So at this point, it kind of clued in on me. That's like, you know what? The the traditional advice that our parents gave us, they mean well, but you know, for this generation, it just doesn't work anymore. Like we have to make changes. It's just, there's so many people that are stressed out. People are almost dying at their desks. People are going crazy buying houses and just throwing good money after bad with these Properties and it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, So then at this point, we decided okay, what can we possibly do? Uh, So around 2012, when we were gonna buy a house and we had saved up um, half a million dollars, uh, just really, really trying desperately to buy a house, saving as much as possible, we realized at that point, what if we actually invest the money and then continue saving towards a portfolio instead? That was around the time that we uh, discovered um, index investing. And we also discovered the uh, financial independence uh, movement. Like we started reading blogs, we started consuming as many uh, books as we could on investing. And it was around that point that we discovered the 4% rule. And we calculated that we would need a million dollars to um, passively generate enough income to cover our uh, 40000 a year expense. And that that would be the point that we could retire. And so I thought that it was going to take maybe another five or 10 years because this was around 2012. It ended up only taking us three years. And then we were able to retire at the age of 31 in uh, 2015. So that basically the rest is history. And uh, we've been traveling the world since and we've been retired about four years now and just it just blows my mind like every day i get up and i just cannot believe that this is my life i i just i just think i'm dreaming every single day it's it's been incredible
0: that's awesome and i appreciate you guys blogging a lot about it too i know you guys go into so much detail more than most <laughs> from what i've seen and and it's just yeah it's really <clears throat> i know you know you and i had uh, some emails back and forth before this and like i said in those emails you guys have really trailblazed the path for canadians i feel because You're doing it, so you're a real life case study. It's not like uh, some theory you've read somewhere, and you're thinking, you know, oh, hopefully this works. You're actually doing it, and you're documenting it, and you're being very transparent with how you do everything. And so that's that's really really awesome because then someone like myself, you know, who kind of retired right after you guys, can then look at that and say, okay, this is great. You know, at at the very least, a great starting point. And then now I can maybe adjust it to my situation to make it work for me like for example we have kids right so then it's like okay mm-hmm. how do i how do i uh, you know modify things to take care of things from that angle right things of that nature so it's really really awesome to have that kind of strong foundation thanks to you guys instead of having wow. to feel like you're in isolation trying to figure this all from scratch and then you're like oh hopefully it works out and
2: <laughs> <laughs> awesome welcome aboard the FI train it is congrats yeah, it
1: <laughs> is subtly different for uh it is something different for Canadians uh in that our taxation structure is, is different from the Americans i would say that our taxation structure our incomes tend to be lower but our taxation structure is a lot simpler so it's a lot easier to understand uh the, with the american system it's they, it's so easy for them to get lost and do the, and accidentally do the wrong thing and and screw themselves over um, in terms of like setting up tax shelters and 401ks for you know decades without realizing that they're doing the wrong thing. So in some ways, our system is actually easier to use. But I think the what's most what's most interesting is when we talk about housing with a lot of um, Americans and a lot of uh, like you know the media and this kind of stuff. When we say houses aren't the best investment, Americans kind of go, "Well, yeah, I know that" because they went through the housing crash Gosh, and and know people that have lost everything in Canada. We are still crazy about housing, so the um, so the it still the idea here that a house is not a good investment is still considered heresy, and it weirds people out because they're like, "How could you not want a house?" In Canada, we are still haven't learned the lesson that the Americans very painfully learned almost ten years ago, and that's the part that really weirds me out because you know we saw what it did to them, and yet we're still making the exact same mistakes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think part of that I I think too is just coming from that's the way it has been. People are raised, you know, they see their parents, their friends telling them that that's what they should be doing, and so that sort of seems to be the default path, right? Because mm-hmm. you trust your parents, you trust your parents' friends, the, and and I don't know what what I uh, Christy, you're talking about how you know, the, um, how you had, I think you said, you said your parents were sort of, you know, pushing you with a oh, different yeah. direction. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. and, and I kind of learned this lesson early on, uh, as well was that, you know, just because someone ha- wants what's best for you and has the best intentions for you, that doesn't mean everything mm-hmm. that they recommend to you is the correct answer.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely! Totally. Yeah, you know and that's I mean? why we. Yeah, that, absolutely, and that's why why we say you know their intentions are good. Good, our parents giving us advice, they have our best interests at heart. 100%. But again, that advice is you know tuned to nineteen eighties, and they right. need to a brand new channel. It's just it's broken. It doesn't work anymore for this particular situation because everything has changed.
1: Uh, I, I was I was um, when I was doing uh, research when we first started the blog. I looked at it back in like the nineteen seventies and. The ratio in Canada of, I think, uh, the average housing price to the average salary was about like 2 to 3x. So people would get into debt, but they would try to get out of it as quickly as possible because um, because interest rates were like, you know, 15, 20% or something crazy like that. But because the house itself wasn't that expensive, they, it wouldn't take them that long. So that would be equivalent of, you know an engineer making $60,000 and then buying a house for 120 100, you know, 120, you know, $150,000 like yeah, that doesn't exist anymore. Now, the ratio was something like 17x or something like that. Like mm-hmm. people are willingly signing them- themselves up to 25 th- uh, you know, 30-year mortgages and just intending to just stay in that mortgage forever. So if you're going to be in that situation, your job better be damn solid. And the thing is our jobs are not. So Right. Like, it's, that's that's the big disconnect that they that you know my dad will kind of say well you know yeah but house houses always go up because they went up for him yeah um they went up for him because he bought right when interest rates were at like you know fifteen percent and the interest rates have been done nothing but fall to like two until recently where it started to tick back up again so he hasn't lived in, a, in an environment where houses have ever gone down in value so of course that would make sense for him that's not our situation
0: for sure one hundred percent and yeah like I mean I don't. I did not live in Toronto, so I never got to experience the craziness that you guys did. But mm-hmm. I remember around that time, or not, you know, not that long ago, we were experiencing a bit of that here in, in Kitchener Waterloo, where where I live. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, I would see these bidding wars that are just happening constantly, and it just seemed crazy to me. I mean, it's 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 like the writings on the wall that this is not a sustainable thing. Uh, and I remember, you know, after seeing enough of that, I at that time we owned. Uh, a larger house and like we were mortgage free on the house and then we had a rental property too and when i saw mm-hmm. the craziness happening there i was like you know what i i'm cashing out <laughs> this is this <laughs> is you know it was like like, yeah. you know, like there's there's clearly you know the gains have happened they're there mm-hmm. we can yep. i felt like it would be foolish to assume that the growth with the experience is going to continue growth at that pace, because it's just not realistic. Right. Incomes aren't increasing at the rate the uh, the houses are, right? Uh, and so I remember we sold our rental, threw it all into e-index ETFs. Uh, and then with our primary residence, we actually uh, downgraded. So we ended up selling our house, um, you know, and then moving into a smaller, uh, a smaller house as well. So I mean, that was something that actually helped us reach our uh, FI number. Um, but yeah, so just to speak to the the craziness you guys saw, we got a bit of that too. And and
2: good for you, you. Yeah. yeah. I think what happens with housing is it's such an emotional decision, right? Like when I talk to other people about our asset allocation for, you know, for our investments, like, oh, we're doing 60-40, somebody else might be more, uh, you know, bullish and they're doing like 90-10, they're a lot less risk adverse. We don't fight about that. We're just like, okay, you know, agree to disagree. That totally makes sense for you. This totally makes sense for me. But when you start bringing up housing, like people get so emotional because It's like if you don't buy into it and you're like, no, no, thanks. I don't really want that. Then that affects the value of their house because they start worrying that not enough people are getting into the market. And some people are so over leveraged that the house doesn't even have to go up. It can just stay flat. The house price can just stay flat and they would be in big trouble because they have this domino effect of like buying property one after another, right? Mm -hmm. So it really is this emotional, uh, just baggage. And I I see people whose houses have gone up in Toronto, like it's doubled and they're still miserable because they refuse to sell it. And when I ask them why they say, well, then I'm going to have to just buy another house. So why would I do that? (laughs) So it's like, once they become homeowners, it's like, they couldn't possibly believe going back to renting or downsizing. They're like, I'm used to this lifestyle. I cannot change it. This is who I am. It's, it's, I'm so emotionally attached to this house, right? So I think that's, that's where the fear of missing out and that whole like other people are trying to get you into the market because it's really emotional.
1: Yeah, but that's what we call, them, that's what we call them home boners on our site. And uh, I don't... I don't... <laughs> like that
2: doesn't mean everybody who buys a house. That means people who are obsessed with real, real estate and who say anything else, you're a heretic.
1: I don't
0: think Remax is getting us any advertising dollars. That's right. No, no affiliate uh, deals with, with Remax. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, uh, you guys mentioned your book a few times. Tell us a bit about your book. What's it about? Who's it for? And how do us Canadians benefit from reading it?
2: Sure. Um, The book is actually an interesting story because initially we didn't actually want to write a book. Um, so I got this email one day from an editor from Penguin and she said, Oh, I, um, I have a client who is a, a, like a Hollywood actress and she reads your blog and she recommended you guys to me. So I started reading her blog and I think it would be really great for you to write a book (laughs) and our actual reaction, because we had written children's books before, so we've been in the industry, right? And I was like, Oh, I don't want to write a book. It's so much work. Ah, so (laughs) And then we actually had like several calls with the um, editor. She's actually an editor from Penguin. And then after a while, I got to talking with her. And then she convinced us that it's actually a good idea to write a book. Um, So what ended up coming out of that discussion was, um, so the book is actually about the lessons that I learned uh, through growing up in poverty and then moving into middle class and then finally becoming rich. So it's basically the lessons learned from going from the bottom one percent to the one to the top one percent, because we believe that um, in order to understand finances and at, actually like achieve financial freedom, you need lessons from different um, classes. Like you need lessons from growing up in poverty, and you need lessons from people who know how to make money with money, right? So this book is basically like we tried to write it in a way that's story based so that people who don't usually read finance books will be able to understand, you know, what is an ETF and how do you invest? And those topics that are seemingly complicated in the most simplest way possible.
1: And uh, and what's what we think is most uh, special about this book is that when she said she grew up in poverty, she grew up in abject poverty the way that you know most Canadians could never understand. She, uh, she actually... Was born in, in China and then immigrated into Canada when she was seven. And when she was in China, we did the research back then to see what uh, their family made and lived on back then in uh, back then in rural China. And it was like forty four cents the equivalent of forty four cents a day. That's what they were living on. And the, you know the the opening of the book starts with her uh, a true story of her rummaging through a medical waste heap looking for toys. That was her reality uh, growing yeah. up. And then to go from that all the way to clawing her way into the middle class when actually immigrating to Canada and then becoming a millionaire, uh, what was the most interesting thing about that story is there was almost no real like random events or luck involved. There's, there's, there are stories of people that, you know, there's a rags to which of stories of people that managed to hit a home run because they made the next Snapchat or they bought Apple when it was like $10. There's precisely none of those events that happened throughout their life. And as a result of that, her journey is completely reproducible. So depending on where the reader is in their socioeconomic status, when, they, when they're when started, they should be able to find out where they kind of match up to where she is, uh, where her journey was, and then simply start copying the moves that she made going forward. And if they do that, they're going to become a millionaire in about the same amount of time, because what everything that we did in the book and to get here was was mathematically reproducible. And that's really special because most finance books don't have that journey that you can literally just just copy and paste and then just, you'll get the same result. Mm-hmm.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, the fact that you guys have it as a repeatable process that people can follow yeah. instead of going out there searching on your own, trying to put the pieces together, trying to figure out which advice works, which one is just someone just telling it to you because they're making money off you on the back end, you know, something like that, yeah, right? So, yeah, um, so that's, that's fantastic because it can be very overwhelming. Uh, I mean, all the information's available now, but it's, it's so hard to, it can be hard to piece it all together and separate what's true. That was our, what's that, was our
1: experience. Yeah, that was absolutely our experience too. The reason why I wrote this book was there was no how to. the reason why I wrote this book as kind of like a how to become a millionaire book kind of thing Mm-hmm. Like this, a single recruitment pattern because we couldn't find one that was like that. Uh, you, you know, in the book, she's like pulling advice from, you know, my master's class, my master's, um, class on financial engineering and modern portfolio theory and, and, and how to evaluate bonds and like, like different books from different sources, the retirement planning and trying to figure out how to put all this advice together into an actionable, like something like, what do I do? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all that hard work that we did paid off amazingly well. And then now, and then now we're just kind of like, you know what, just copy our work because if somebody else follows the same path, it doesn't take anything away from us. It's not a zero sum game. If it worked for us, it'll work for you. It's just math. Mm-hmm.
0: For sure. And I mean, and it's life changing too, right? I mean, I think if someone, I, I think the fire, I'm very gun hole on the whole fire movement because I think once you hit that number and you're able, you're not, well, don't, 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 you don't have to work for money anymore. You can now really pursue what you're passionate about, what you love, and at least I'll, I'll ask you the question about this later. But I mean, I found personally that you can't just sit back and not work at all. You, you know, you want something for the fulfillment, you want to give back. You know, there, there is that yeah. need you have as, as humans, right? And so the I think by, to sit back and do nothing, that, that, you know, you deserve <laughs> yeah.
2: that, you earned it, you know. But then after
0: that, yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. So, One was, of the, hmm.
0: yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you go ahead.
2: Um, I find that one of the benefits of becoming financially independent is that it it helps you think of, like, the bigger questions. Because when we were working, it was just, you know, like, pay pay off the bills and just – you can't really think about anything. You're just treading water and you're thinking about yourself a lot. Uh, once you actually become financially independent, you actually have that breathing space, not just to find your own passions, but, like you said, to give back. Like, we actually had time to volunteer. We had time to build a, an app for a nonprofit. Uh, like, I've had time to, like, actually mentor Um, other girls on how to program and like make an app. So these are all things that we would have never had time to, to think about or had time to do while we were working. So you kind of like, it's like that triangle of needs, right? Like once you have your needs fulfilled, you're at the top of the pyramid. It's like, how can I give back? Like, what is the purpose of life? How do I find meaning? how can i build a community how can i help other people mm-hmm. and that has been the most rewarding thing about financial independence and like an advantage a benefit that people don't think about until after they retire
0: that's amazing yeah and i mean if you help someone find hit their fire uh, you know get get to that level and now they have the mental freedom and time freedom to pursue something they're passionate about they're going to do better at it they now could go and turn that around and give back in their own way with whatever their skills and interests and are Absolutely. right so so i think it's a it's it's almost like a with this book, I feel almost like you guys are, there's a bit of like a snowball effect, right? Where yeah. you teach someone, they do it, and now they can help others, and then those can help others, and those, you know, and it just kind of, it, it can be an exponential sort of, you know, benefit, right, to, to people. So I, I think it's fantastic you guys did it, the book, in that kind of a way, where it is a, you know, step-by-step repeatable process, essentially.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we've actually seen like results already just because we do a lot of reader cases on our blog. We've had people actually respond to us and say, Oh my God, I was so lost. I didn't know what to do with my finances. And then after you did my reader case, I really had to go back and look at it. And then you, you find out that their like savings rate went from, you know, like negative 5% and all of a sudden they're saving like 30% and they're going to work towards 50% of their savings rate. Um, and then other people have actually like sold everything and then started traveling the world. And um, like one of them, because one of them is like remotely working there, it doesn't actually make any difference where they are. And then they managed to like cut their budget in half. And then now they actually have extra time to volunteer at the animal shelter and things that they never would have had time to, ha- to do before. Right. So we've actually seen um, real life cases, the concrete cases of people who have actually changed their lives because they're no longer stressing about money. Mm-hmm. They can actually think about like, you know, how to build a community, their family, giving back and things like that.
1: Yeah. Again, because it's the, the, the stuff that we did actually works, you can just, it's reproducible. And that's what's the most amazing
0: part about this journey. Mm-hmm. That's, that's wonderful. And then what analysis did you guys do to determine if you have enough to retire and then also ensure that you don't run out of money? What what, what was the whole thought, sort of thought process you went through there?
1: Well, the um, so it was based primarily off of uh, a body of work by a professor named Wade Fow at, uh, at a at a college called Trinity College, uh, I believe, uh, in which he was a uh, economist or something, and he uh, was trying to determine what was a safe amount a retiree could withdraw from their portfolio and not run out of money. And what he did was he ran a what's called a Monte Carlo analysis. So he would you know. He was using software, he would simulate, you know, hundreds and hundreds of retirees that were retiring across all of his, the history of the stock market and seeing, uh, and then having them withdraw different amounts, you know, simulated and then seeing which one of them made it and which one of them did it. And from this, he was able to determine that what is the now famous 4% rule that a lot of retirement planners use. And what the 4% rule states is that a retiree, uh, retiring with a portfolio of a certain size can afford to withdraw a starting amount of 4% of that portfolio and then adjust their withdrawal to inflation every year. And they have, if they do that, then they stand a 95% chance of not running out of money over a 30-year retirement period. So that is from the basis of what is a safe amount to withdraw with a safe withdrawal rate, So, uh, which is 4%. So from that, you can kind of reverse engineer and say, okay, if you can withdraw 4% of your portfolio every year without running out of money um, in order to retire. That means that the inverse of 4% is 25. That means that if you take your current living expenses, and you multiply that by 25. Um, that's how much money you need to save in order to maintain in order to passively maintain your current living expenses uh, uh, in retirement. So that's kind of where we started off, we, we were in Toronto, and we knew that we were spending about $40,000 uh, a year and from that we figured okay we needed a million dollars to retire at the and at the time i was um and at the time we were looking at housing we had been saving and saving and saving uh, up to get that down payment for that damn house and at the time we had saved up half a million dollars uh, and we were ready to to blow it on a house and when we hit that aha moment of being like i don't want to do that uh, so we took that money and then we figured okay if we invested and then we start making a kind of like a conservative estimate of six percent roi of uh, on the um in passive index investing uh how long would it take for us to you know uh hit a million dollars if we continue saving that, that we didn't give or take and the answer that came out was three years um so so then this so then the decision point became okay do i want to give a bunch of money to this homeowner and then be in debt for the next twenty-five years, or do to retire in three years. And then the answer was pretty obvious from that. I was like, "Oh, screw the house. I'm going to retire and sit yeah. on the beach." So that's kind of where. So that's kind of the um, the, the basic um, the basic rule that we use to determine how much we need to retire income. The 4 percent rule.
0: Gotcha. And then with the Trinity study, they they looked at 30 years, whereas because you guys are early retired, your time range is more like 60 years in retirement. So did you adjust the four percent rule to something like 3.5%, for example, or how did you how did you deal with that, I guess, limitation of the Trinity study where they're looking at a 30% or sorry, a 30 year Time frame, because traditionally that's when people would retire, right? As they would say, okay, 60 year at 60, you retire that date sets you up until you're 90. So you're set. How did you guys factor all that in?
1: Sure. So, um, what we did with that was after we, um, after we left, we started uh, traveling. And when we realized when we started traveling, that it was possible to actually adjust how much money that you spent based on where you stayed in. So for example, if you're, if you, if you then, to our surprise, because, you know, we all think that traveling is expensive. Well, when you're living in a place like, you know, the UK, obviously your uh, expenses are very high, but if you're living in a place like Thailand, which is where we're talking to you right now, your expenses are very low. And uh, when you're living in Thailand, our expenses actually dropped from $40,000 to a year, you know, if so we were to stay here for the entire year to about $20,000, $25,000. So, so we realized that there was this, there was a way that you can control how much money that you actually spent based on where you were living so uh, what we realized from that was that a first of all you could even though you could save up that much <coughs> in order to spend forty thousand dollars you could choose to spend far less simply by choosing to live on a beach in thailand like what we're doing now and second um we talked about this a bit in the book and we realized that we could adapt the four percent rule to a uh to a, a, which again as you've pointed out is a um for a 30-year retirement period to An arbitrary amount of retirement period by simply rerunning the simulation every year. So every year, um, when you put your number at the moment that you retire, you put your numbers in the, you know, the calculators will tell you 4% of the success rate of what you're planning to spend. The next year after that, if you re, if you say, okay, now I have this amount of money, uh, I'm going to rerun the calculation and uh, plug my numbers into the calculator and then show what's my success rate now. And, um, but this calculation is actually going to show your, retirement for uh, uh, an additional 30 years like you know restarting now so by doing this every year you can actually measure and measure the overall health of your retirement over time and this works like you know perpetually because every time you do that you're resetting your retirement for the next 30 years so by doing that you can figure out okay if my portfolio is my, my retirement is getting a little less healthy because it went from my you know my um Withdrawal rate went, or sorry, my safety factor went from 95% success rate to like 94. Maybe I'll spend a little bit more time in, in, you know, Vietnam next year and then spend less. And then let's see what that does to my retirement. And then you put that number in and you say like, oh, actually that makes it go up to 98. So you can, you can do this to continuously adjust how much you spend each year by adjusting where you travel and where you retire in. And that way you can adapt the study to basically work for a retirement period of infinite years because each year you're retesting and recreating a retirement of 30 years, you know, starting now. So this is a process we call perpetual re-retirement, and it's a concept that we talk about in the book.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating, yeah. And then how do you deal with something, for example, recently, right, at the end of 2018, we had a bit of a correction, right, in the markets. Nothing, nothing crazy like a 2008, but, but there was clearly a, a correction, right? So in those cases, January comes around. Now at that point, are you now rerunning, your simulations again using the Monte Carlo analysis and we'll get to the tools later for anyone listening because yeah we'll we'll talk about those because these are free tools you can use so that's like a whole other question later but do you guys that yeah, yeah. just rerun those simulations and in January and say oh dear our you know our network just dropped by a, a fairly significant amount you know how what's your thought process in those kinds of situations yep that's uh,
1: that's essentially what we did um uh, and um on top of that Uh we added another like kind of layer to our own retirement strategy, which we call the yield shield, which you know I know that I know I know you want to talk about a little bit later, but uh that's a strategy that we also use to prevent ourselves from actually needing to withdraw from the portfolio during a down year. And that's because that's the dangerous, um that's the dangerous thing to do. Uh when the five percent of people that uh fail in those simulations fall victim to something called a sequence of return risk. And the sequence of return risk is uh what happens when you retire and then immediately hit a down, like a series of down years. Because if you retire and then the stock markets go up, 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 and then down a little bit, that's okay because you're still above your original number. But if you retire and then it goes down, down, and then like up, 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 that's actually really bad because during that initial down year, you, you were forced to sell when your when your portfolio was smaller. And as a result, yeah, uh, when the stock market rebounds and it inevitably does, uh, you had less units in order to participate in the upside. So the danger of the of failing comes from being forced to sell stock units uh or portfolio units in a downturn. So what you want to do is you want to prevent yourself from doing that. And from and to do that, uh we we built this additional layer on top of our portfolio called uh, the New So I guess, I guess you want to talk about that
0: a bit. For sure. For sure. Yeah, that, that's definitely, that's question. Uh, that's one of the, the future questions for sure. But before we get into that one, I mean, you guys have been retired already now for several years. How have your thoughts on the 4% rule changed? Uh, if, if at all, in any way, now that you've kind of because because before retirement, right, it's it's th- it's theoretical, right, and and I mean right. it's it's based on actual market data, right, so it's not like it's coming out of nowhere. But you know, now that you've actually lived it, and, and obviously, four percent rule has certain assumptions as well, right, and now you've got to kind of live through those in real life. You know, has your have your views on it changed at all? You know, what what are your thoughts on that?
2: Um, So right before, like, as we were retiring, we were actually quite cognizant of the fact that we could be retiring into a market correction because there had been a bull run for so long, right? So we knew that we had to mitigate for the first five years. So that's, that's like, you know, let's test it out. We're test means for this, for sequence of return risk. What do we do? Um, so that's when we came up, before we even left work, we came up with this uh, three-prong strategy, and we didn't even know about the third prong, how well it was going to work at the time, but it's really working now. Um, so the first prong is having, you know, yield, like Bryce was saying, we'll get into that later, like what you do to actually build this yield shield. Uh, but basically, if you have fixed income and dividends coming in, and you don't actually have to sell any of your um, actual underlying ETFs, um, that shields you from having to sell anything and risk like depleting your portfolio too fast. So that's yield shield is the first prong. The second prong, we also have a cash cushion that we saved up um, that actually allows Allows us to cover living expenses for three years. Um, so that's the second prong. And then the third prong is uh, geographic arbitrage. So as engineers, we like to not just have one back, backup plan, but have multiple backup plans. And that's kind of like how airplanes work, right? Like when you actually run into a problem, they don't just have one way of solving the problem. They have many, many backup plans where you fall from one level to the next, and then it catches you on the next level of backup plan, right? So um, right, right before we retired, we knew that we could be running into sequence of return risk. So, uh, we were very cognizant of building these three prong, like, approach to, like, uh, help us get through it. And we've actually had to test them. Um, so first in 2015, I don't think Americans really had to go through this, but for Canadians, there was, um, because the oil prices were going down, there was an oil crash. So as a result, our portfolio plummeted. Um, So we actually managed to use the yield shield along along with the uh, cash cushion uh, to be able to not have to sell any of the assets. So that basically shows you that because you have this three-pronged strategy that we've actually used it and survived as a result and haven't depleted our portfolio. So as a result, our portfolio now is actually much higher than when we started.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, like, it actually, it's now we've now had two negative years out of the previous, like, four, oddly enough, so 2015 uh, there was a Saudi uh, oil crisis that hit Alberta particularly hard, and as a result, the TSX particularly hard. Uh, as as well as this most most recent market correction that happened in December of 2018. And in both cases, what we did was we chose not to sell anything, as the four percent rule would tell us to do uh, at a loss. We used up a year of our cash cushion, and then the next year, when everything rebounded, we refilled the cash cushion back up again. So. Um, by doing this, uh, as, as, as Pissy said, we were, we were able to avoid doing the bad thing and wind up one of those 5% for guys that, that ran their portfolio into the ground. And as, as of right now, I think we, we retired with 1 million and now we're looking
2: at like. Our net worth is, um, 1, 1. 1.2 million now.
1: Yeah, yeah. 1.2 now. So, so, so we
2: break down all, all the statistics and like all the numbers in our book as well as on our blog.
1: So we survived, we survived two crashes. We're now richer than when we retired. So, uh, to answer your original question, we're a lot more confident in 4%. than than we were, but it's but it's because we didn't blindly rely on the four percent rule. It was we took the four percent rule as a guideline for how much to save, but then we kind of, you know, used our engineering brains to kind of create all these like fail-safe mechanisms so that so that we really wouldn't be vulnerable to for if the bad things that uh, did happen.
0: That's awesome. That's why I love engineers. They always do these things. <laughs> <Yeah>. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a, I think
2: it's part, part part of it is engineering, and part of it is because I grew up poor, so I'm like extremely risk adverse. So, oh, okay, like my first thing, my first thought for anything that happens is like, what's the worst thing that could happen? How many how many backup plans do we have? Do we have plan ABCDEFG? Like that's just mm-hmm. kind of how my brain works, right? Because when you grow up in poverty, it's like scarcity the scarcity mindset is the thing that you have that you're like, no, everything is not going to be okay. (laughs) What are we going (laughs) to, even if it's okay, I'd rather have these fail-safe plans there so that if I don't use it, that's great. But if I use it, I'm not, I'm not going to lose any sleep at night. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's engineering plus growing up poor to give us these like multiple backup plans that, so that we don't fail. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Christy, you said you were seven, right? When you came to Canada?
2: Uh yeah seven, oh, t- turning eight around that, that okay age. so
0: like like grade two or something like that right or two or three yeah, or something
2: grade one grade two, grade two okay yeah.
0: cool yeah I I came uh from Poland actually uh when I was in grade oh, one cool. as well we came to Canada and Very we were cool. we were escaping it was communist at the time so we were escaping oh communism God. so we had like a pretty crazy story too where. It's yeah. like you know, new country, escaping communism. You know, mm-hmm. obviously poor, right? It's, it's not like you oh, yeah. you know come to yeah. Canada and then parents are earning six figures or anything like that, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so, that, so so I hear you when you talk about you know the kind of scarcity mindset uh, and yeah. having these backup plans. I I hear you because I, I feel I have that too, just from that kind wow. of experience, and it drives my wife crazy sometimes. But you know, it's good to have, <laughs> to, to, good to have yeah. <laughs> It's good to have both sides, both bases covered, right? <laughs> yes,
2: that's fascinating. Does does your parents also think if the commies are not breaking down your door and then dragging you up uh, off to a labor camp, you don't have real problems? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> there, there's, there's definitely a different perspective, right? Where yes, you know, yeah, yeah, we like,
2: definitely have a very different perspective. <laughs> the kind of like trauma that our parents lived through, we can't even imagine. Like we would never be able to imagine in a million
0: years. Oh, one hundred percent. Like I just you know sometimes you hear people privileged people complain, and it's like we yeah. have no right to complain. Yeah. I've I've exactly. lost my right to complain because i don't have to (laughs) worry for my life so yeah
2: (laughs) yeah and it's it's been quite fascinating like getting to know that that back my background my parents background because you know one of the things we did while traveling through europe was visiting eastern europe and seeing all the damage that was caused by communism and you know all the things like all the people that suffered and like there was this one story i remember of this um like in the museum in um estonia there was this one like little tiny sack of sand and it was saying it was saying that this sand um was like a, a, a like a possession put, uh, kept by a woman who was basically dragged off to Siberia like by the Russians and she had like her, she was like grasping on this piece this bag of sand when the soldiers tried to take it away from her she was like no you can shoot me but i'm not going to let you take this piece this sand because this is the sand from Estonia from my country that you're trying to like drag me away from right and it just really shows like the the humanity like how much humanity was taken away from that those people and it really makes you like appreciate everything you have that you've never had to go through you know famine you never had to go through uh revolution or war it, it really makes you appreciate everything that you have.
0: Is your um
1: is, is your wife what background is she from?
0: So she's uh, Dutch and English.
1: Oh okay yeah that's really interesting actually there is something that I've been noticing the more interviews and the more you know FI couples that I do where it is there's one person that grew up in relative poverty or had, you know, some experience with poverty and another person who didn't. And, um, and there is this weird interplay of like, when you put the two kind of skill sets together, that's kind of what creates the FI mindset because interesting, I, I didn't, because I, I was actually born in Canada, so I didn't get any years. Christy. And as a result of that, uh, Christy is the one that budgets, like she budgets like crazy. She's the one uh, obsessing over, spreadsheets, she, like when you walk into a store, I don't know how much grapes are supposed to cost, but she will remember, you know, oh, that's too expensive, grapes should cost this not much per pound or something like that. So she has her mind is a steel trap for prices. <laughs> <I like. laughs> uh, and as a result of that, she's amazing at budgeting uh, and getting the maximum value of your money because she grew up in an environment where she didn't have a lot of that. I, on the other hand, uh, didn't have that, but as a result of that, um, it's kind of a double-edged sword. When you are, when you grew up in poverty, uh, investing in something that could potentially go down in value is really, really, really difficult. Like investing, putting your money in anything besides um, you know savings the, a savings yeah. account or your mattress mm-hmm. is extremely difficult for someone who grew up in poverty. But it's not for me. So for me, um, like I was able to more um, objectively look at all the math and figure out how you know you know vol you know the stock market is volatile, but in the longer term, it's the, it's the best way of, of of growing your wealth. So. Take a, putting together those two skill sets: the ability to save money and the ability to, um, uh, and, and the ability to figure out how to invest it intelligently. Those are the two skill sets that you actually need to become FI, and it, and it comes from having, you know, I think one mm-hmm. person yeah. who grew up in poverty and one person who grew up middle class.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a good that way you kind of get the basis covered. I, I find it's usually like I'm the analytical one for us mm-hmm. and coming up with the contingency plans and the redundancies and all that. Whereas my wife, she's like the trigger puller, right? She'll be the one that's like, okay, you actually have to like, do it now. <laughs> Instead <laughs> exactly. of just hiding behind your spreadsheet yeah, yeah. and reanalyzing it for the 30th time. Oh, yeah. And you <laughs> so, need that.
2: You absolutely need that, right? Yeah. Because if it wasn't, I probably would have been like, no, I can't jump. <laughs> I can't do this. Exactly. But you need somebody who's optimistic. That's like, it's going to be okay. Right. You're wasting your life not taking this chance like exactly you, all can, right so yeah you need that person to to, to pull you yeah, Chris, out of it like yeah. you chrissy
1: is
0: extremely vulnerable to analysis paralysis
2: oh yeah
1: like, oh yeah oh, me yeah. too
0: i hear you <laughs> <laughs> the comments, i'm sure guys. i'm sure Christian. i could geek out on spreadsheets for hours
2: oh yeah totally <laughs> all yeah all spreadsheeting all the time that's what we're gonna be doing next time yeah. we we'll see each other for sure.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Um, no, that, that that's great. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. How the uh, like with the couples though. That's 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 really interesting. Um, but yeah, so so we talked a little bit. We mentioned kind of uh, casually the the, the um, some of the calculators that we use. That both you guys use. I use. Um, I remember you guys talking about how you used Fire Calc or, or was c Sim. Those are kind of the two that I'm aware of. Um, and I remember using them obsessively before handing in my resignation. I remember waking up at like three in the morning. <laughs> on the day yeah. I was about to hand it in, and I'm I'm like oh, yeah. re-crunching the numbers on my, I'm, you know, rerunning the simulations, you know, <laughs> like three in the morning <laughs> before, because oh, yeah. I knew like okay, and you know, in like eight hours you're going to be handing in resignation. Are you sure? So so let's let's talk about these. Can you explain to the listeners, you know, what those are and how you use them?
1: Well, uh, so these are both study- these are both just three tools that um, someone made. Um, that, that you know, allows you to dynamically run the training study again in like you know, a, a second or two. So what, how it works is you put in you know, your, a, a certain portfolio size, how much you plan on spending at, and the amount of time that you're planning on retiring as well as a bunch of other variables if you want. And uh, in, behind the scenes, they pulled all of the stock market and uh, uh, all of the um, pricing data for the stock market and the bond market. Uh, across all of the historical data that you can have going back to, I don't know how long, like 200 years or whatever. And, uh, and they will then rerun the simulation for you, uh, the the same one that the 4% study does, and it will tell you how many, uh, what your, what your success rate is. So what the firesome spits out is not how much money you end up with, because that, that is, um, that really depends on when you retired and and then the sequence of, of of returns that happened but it returns back a success rate. So did you make it to the end of the retirement without running out of money? So if you were to go into it, and you would plug in a million dollars and 40000 uh, spending, which is 4%, you would get 95% of success rate. That's what they did. Uh, but that allows yeah. you to kind of play around and do what-if analysis. You could kind of go, what if I work a little bit longer and you know I save up 1.1 million or something like that? We will, we'll, then your success rate will be like 96% or 97% or something like that. Um, at a certain point, it does become like hundred percent, which is there is no recorded failure in their industry. And that's somewhere around 3.5 or something like that. So that's also for, for the people out there that just really absolutely have to get over that hump of like, you know, hundred percent, you can figure out where that point is. Um, you can also do it and you can also do it like what we discovered, which is, Hey, you can do it by adjusting your spending too. If you spend a little bit more time in Thailand, we can drop our spending from 40,000 to maybe 35,000, 30,000. What does that do to your retirement? And that'll make, and and then you'll be able to measure. Quantitatively, what what how that decision affects the safety of your retirement period. So it's a free tool that's used out there, and um, and it's everybody who attempts to do this thing spends a lot of time on those on those yep. calculators. I'm not sure why they didn't put advertising on those calculators, but <laughs> if they did, somebody would make a lot of money right now.
0: Yeah. and yeah it's interesting to bring up the 3.5%. I remember I was listening to a podcast uh, where Michael Kitsis was on it on the Mad Scientist podcast and he yeah. you know dived into this pretty pretty deeply and he kind of mentioned how the 3.5% is sort of that that floor um, that like very sustainable floor. That's pretty good for early retirees that are looking to make it last, let's say 60 years, something like that. Um, so yeah, so that's why I was, be- yeah, I, I think that's, um, that's a really good episode. So yeah. yeah, I'll, I'll link to all those tools and I'll link, I'll link to that episode as well. I think it's very valuable to listen to. Um, so I'll do that in, in the show notes now in those tools, you can kind of go with the default settings or you can adjust certain variables as well, as well, as well. <laughs> are there any adjustments that you made or wish you'd made? That you think would be useful for Canadians to know when they run their own calculations and simulations before you know they they pull the trigger and then and see whether they can retire yet or not.
1: Yeah, you know, what? actually in many ways it's kind of funny because there's a lot of people out there that obsess over the 4% rule. If you look up the 4% rule, the media is like, oh but but with Trump and low returns and all this kind of stuff, it's not the 4% rule, it's the 3% rule, maybe it's 3.5, maybe it's 3.75. The the really interesting thing is that you can actually Dance out a lot of those like bad situations using simply just your decisions after you retire, like mm-hmm. lifestyle. So, yeah. okay. So I talked about a little bit about using geographic arbitrage, um, to, uh, to dynamically adjust your spending after you retire. Not a lot of, I don't think anyone else has written about this because we're the, we're one of the few people who actually implemented it in practice. Another that I was really surprised about was inflation. So, uh, if you remember back then when I was describing the 4%, well, one of the things that they said was withdraw 40,000 and adjust it for inflation. And um, what was really interesting to me when we were retiring um, after, or after we retired is we realized that if you travel and you decide to retire to another country, inflation numbers that we're used to back in Canada or the US are every inflation number is national, right? Because when you, know, um, when you report the CPI of the, you know when the Bank of Canada reports the CPI uh, top line inflation rate every year, that's for inflation inside Canada. When the US does it, that's for inflation inside the US. Inflation actually changes depending on what country that you're in. And um, you know, Japan has has famously been in a deflationary spiral this for like decades, you know, the last decade and all that kind of stuff. So people kind of think as, of inflation as something, and I and I thought this as well, that inflation was something that you couldn't change and simply just happened to you. But when you start traveling, you realize you're not exposed to the inflation of your home country. You're exposed to the inflation of the country that you're actually in. So, uh, so you know, uh, we were we're in Thailand right now. We're talking in Thailand. Um, four years ago, we were also in Thailand, and the funny thing is, inflation seems to have not affected Thailand at all.
2: Yeah. So back then, in two thousand and sixteen, uh, we rented an apartment for a, it was like five hundred and seventy-five Canadian dollars. And now we can still rent an apartment for 575 uh, Canadian dollars in Bangkok. And we also found that food, like back then we we bought a bowl of noodles for like 40 baht, uh, which is like less than $2 Canadian. Now it's still 40 baht. Uh, and it's not just Thailand either. Like when we were traveling around Europe, because we actually spent a year in Europe last year, because um, we actually got a visa that allowed us to stay there. And we found out that places like Portugal or your favorite, Poland, <laughs> actually has really like almost negative inflation or no inflation at all, where uh, you go in and the cost of living is so much lower than what we're used to, which is living in Toronto, or even a lot of our friends living in other cities in in Canada. Um, And then I I even talked to my friends and comparing Toronto with other cities, like people who live in smaller towns, or people who live in like, the Maritimes, or people who live in Montreal, their cost of living is lower too. So that uh the the fact that you have to spend a certain amount and you are subjected to inflation that happens when you are forced to stay in a big city because of work if you have the ability to actually move around like we've seen this with one of our readers um they used to live in really really expensive san francisco but because uh one of them their job was actually completely online they work from home and they actually moved to mexico and the time zone didn't change uh, their employer didn't even care because, you know, it's basically the same thing. She showed up to work, did her work at the same time online, and they were able to cut their expenses in half. So it really makes a huge difference where you are. And a lot of it is tied to work. A lot of people have um, high cost of living because of the city that they work in. They're tied to big city.
1: Yeah. So I mean, like uh, so going back to the calculator, the parameter, the parameter by default assumes that you are adjusting for inflation based on the, the CPI numbers. Um, and I didn't realize this, but you can actually change that if you drop it to like zero, like 4% become like just, just based on that, if you, if you don't need to, if you don't need to worry about inflation, uh, the 4% rule becomes like 100% success rate. And mm-hmm. you know what? In practice, we've been retired for four years now. Um, uh, we should have been taking inflation adjustments this entire time. Mm-hmm. And in actuality. It's uh, like deflation. <laughs> it's actually been going down. It's yeah. been going down. And we've been actually seeing deflationary spending. And I, that was an assumption that I never even thought of. Yeah,
2: that. we were actually supposed to raise the forty thousand by two percent each year because four percent allows you to actually raise it by right. that. But we haven't had to. Like we we're still within forty thousand. Last That's year I yeah last year we only spent thirty six thousand because we spent a lot of time in Mexico where everything was dirt cheap. So it you know it it's not as fixed as you think it is. A lot of it is because people are tied to their jobs, so mm. they 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 are kind of forced to stay in that area, and they don't have the time, they don't have the ability to mitigate it. Uh, another thing we realized after retirement, and of course the retirement police are going to be all up in arms on this, is that like, even if you make a tiny bit of money, like one of the things we were trying to do, um, cause one of my passions is writing. So we were trying to write children's books while we were, uh, while we were working. <laughs> I thought that was going to be my, my like freedom, my, my, uh, like path to riches. Yeah. Don't try to write a children's book. It's not going to be your path to riches. Trust me. Um, so, uh, you know, doing that, like that even now, like after we published a, a children's book with Scholastic, it's not enough to even pay for groceries. But even making as little as like 5000 after retirement, like that would be a huge failure if you did that regularly, right? Like if I made $5,000 a year, I can't, I can't cover any of my grocery costs. That's not even that my grocery costs are going to swamp that, right? But if you look at the 4% rule and you're thinking, okay, maybe I'll be safer with 3.5%, boom, $5,000 from your children's book. All of a sudden, you only need to take out 3.5% right? So even if you make a tiny bit of money in retirement, it makes you safer. So you could either use geographic arbitrage to um, like mitigate your expenses, because you're not stuck in a high cost city, because you don't have to work anymore. Or you could do something that's you're passionate about. And even if it makes a little tiny bit of money, it makes it so much safer. And normally, that would be a, you know, abject failure if you made 5000 a year. But after you become FI, it helps tremendously, because it makes a really big difference in your withdrawal rate.
0: For sure. Yeah. To me, that was kind of one of my big um, sort of I don't know, revelations. I don't know if that's the right word, but my big sort of light bulb moments was when you realize that realistically, you actually are going to make some income in retirement. It, it, that that it's actually, I would argue, it's unrealistic to assume that you're not going to make any income, uh, you know, that others would consider as, as working. Um, cause you're probably going to do some, you're going to be doing things you're passionate about anyway, and it doesn't take a lot of effort to then take that thing you love doing anyway, that you would probably be doing for free anyway, and just doing a small little tweak and actually making some income out of it. So to me, that was the biggest thing. And I've noticed, I think this is a common, I mean, tell me what you think of this, but I, from what I've seen, cause I study a lot of the other, um, early retirees as well, uh, that are kind of in the fire movement. And it seems like this is a common mistake, that we all have made where we, whenever we, you know, went into fire calc and we did our simulations, we all assumed that we were going to retire and not ever generate any income at all, you know, through quote unquote working. But really everyone, at least everyone that I've seen, you know, including myself still brings in some sort of income, um, you know, because you know what I mean? Like what have you found in that kind of situation?
2: Yeah, so, so this is actually, yeah, I've definitely heard of this. And one of the things that the um, retirement police like to criticize on is, oh, but all these retirees are, you know, writing blogs or doing something on the side. And that's, that's what they're living off of. They're not living off of their portfolio at all, right? So, like I mean, yeah, who cares what the retirement police think, right? But I think they have, you know, a point on, on that. Uh, so one of the things we've actually done to really test out our portfolio is we, we've actually split it into two portfolios which is the money that we retired with um, that was part of our FI number and then a separate por- portfolio of income coming in afterwards. Right. And we only use that income for business expenses. Like we need to buy a new laptop or, you know, for the server because our, our blog is getting pretty big now. So it's costing uh, more money than we thought initially. Right. So then uh, but it's still working. Like we are still living off of the original money that we retired in and it's it's just fine. And Again, and based on what you're saying, we're also making money in retirement, uh, along with other retirees who are following their passion, right? So it's, yeah, it's absolutely, uh, I just don't believe that people are not going to make a single cent after they retire. Like a lot of these are very driven, successful people. Like How were they even able to get to FI if they just sit on the beach for the next 50 years?
1: Like
2: right. that's just, just but if you choose not to make money, it still works. You can still lo- live off the um, original portfolio based on the you know, 3.5% 5% or 4%, but very unlikely that people are just not going to make any money for the next 50 years.
0: For sure, for sure. And then Bryce was talking about with the four percent rule and then how the inf- uh, sort of the inverse of that is the twenty five right so you can multiply by twenty five um, to sort of get um, you know to, to get your number that way. so the, what I like to I know I was doing this analysis myself before kind of pulling the trigger and, and handing in the resignation, but it's like if you let's like you mentioned the five thousand dollars a year example if you mean an extra five thousand dollars a year if you multiply that by 25, that's 125,000, right? So, so by, by just saying, Hey, I'm going to make an extra 5k a year when I'm retired that now you don't have to have an extra $125,000 in your portfolio. I mean, that's huge, right? I mean, the amount of work that that requires to get 125 K is a lot. And so just by making that one tweak, it's huge.
1: Yeah. So, and, and, and the thing is, there are some, um, there are some, um, uh careers in which it's really easy to exactly choose how many hours you want to work or something like that right with engineering you have to go and find freelance projects and this kind of stuff but if you're like a nurse or uh, a pharmacist and you just be like okay well i'll just pick up the next uh, i'll just go from full time to like doing a shift a month or something like that it becomes really easy to actually uh, um to actually like control exactly how much part-time income you're willing to uh to, to work and a lot of those a lot of those professions need a certain number of hours just to maintain their license or whatever, right? That so for for those professions it's actually a lot easier than you think it is just mm-hmm. because just in the process of maintaining the hours needed to keep their license, they've actually like, they've actually unwittingly, uh, like stripped out like hundreds of thousands of dollars out of their FI portfolio. And when I, when I tell them that they kind of go, Oh, really? Right. Like, like their eyes just light up and they kind of go, Wow, mm-hmm. I had no idea. It's really Perfect. amazing how how much, um, how many knobs you can turn once you kind of understand how the
0: math works. For sure. And I mean, I, I just quickly threw in a spreadsheet. I mean, if you have, let's say you're making 10,000 a year, which is totally reasonable, right? I mean, it, it, it's fine, right? You multiply that, that by 25, that's a quarter of a million dollars, you know, $250,000 mm-hmm. that now you need less in your portfolio, uh, for example. Right. I mean, that's, I don't know, to, to me that, that was kind of a bit of a game or at least that, part helped me sleep better at night that if markets really just oh. go bananas and things really yeah. go bad, or I'm, a, I don't know, or we have some unexpected expense that I didn't foresee or something like that. It's like, okay, dude, just fine and go and make an extra 10 K a year. And then you're stop stressing out. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. yeah. There's like so
2: many levers to pull, right? Like the yeah. thing is before you retire, you're just looking at your spreadsheets and going like, what, what, what about this? This could go wrong. That could go wrong. This could go wrong. Yeah. But then after you're actually out, and you actually are doing it, you're like, oh my God, there's so many things that could go right. Like I could do geographic arbitrage. I have a cash cushion. I could live off my yield. I could make a little bit of money afterwards. There's just a lot of things, a lot of options that are open to you. And I think one of the reasons why you can think about that more after you leave work is because you're kind of, your brain has the space to actually think about solutions mm. rather than worrying about everything that can go wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. But did you guys get a giant creativity burst when you resigned?
2: Oh yeah. Oh, oh. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, one of, part of it is from traveling because we met so many different people, like the world schoolers thing, which is something we discovered while traveling. We can talk about that in a, in a little bit, but just different people from different backgrounds that I would have never come across when I was working. Cause I was just around IT people all the time. I, I didn't meet anybody else from any other background, um, gave us so many ideas that we would have never come up with. Um, different places we learned about the history, the culture, the different ways people do things. Never would have, you know, come across that, uh, while we were working. Uh, you know, different opportunities has come to us, like talking, public speaking, uh, being part of different communities that we didn't know existed. Yeah. Just getting out of that mindset. Cause I, I, I actually talked to my doctor about this before and she said that, um, a lot of the cases that come to her now for, you know, to be medicated because of stress, uh, it used to be before that she would get you know, 80% of the people were due to cancer or some sort of like genetic disease that they had no control over. Now, um, 80% of the people coming to her is because of stress related because of work related issues, because she, she describes it as everybody's stuck in this lizard brain mentality, in that they're kind of thinking about survival, and they can't actually access the creative part of their brain, because the lizard brain keeps taking over and thinking about everything that could go wrong. Mm -hmm. So there's like actual tangible evidence from doctors that think because of all the hours that we're working, and the amount of stress that we've had to put on ourselves, we have not been able to even tap into that creative part of our brain. Like our our creativity exploded for writing after we left, Mm -hmm. uh, because there's just so many There's so many opportunities and so many different people and so many experiences that we never had um, that generated all these all these different ideas for solving problems.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating that you guys uh, had that experience as well, because I I definitely felt this giant creativity boost as well. Once I pulled the trigger on it and, and and then that kind of made me feel a bit even safer too, thinking, okay, well, you're already, because like I'm a, I'm a business guy, that's been my whole kind of background, right? So for me, it's like, oh, business, business idea, this fun like project business idea, this would be fun to try, you know? And then you kind of think about it like, wow, this is, I don't know, it's almost like a part of your brain has been unclogged. And now mm-hmm. like, you know, your creativity is just kind of, you're able to access that kind of part of the, your brain that was locked off before. And then also a lot of those things you could easily monetize if needed. So that also I think helps with the whole sleeping at night if there's another 2008 or something like that.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. People don't realize how many, um, like how many different levers they can pull after retirement, right? Cause you actually have time to do all those things. Right. And it's really hard to think about, oh, I'm going to, you know, do a side hustle while I'm working because I'm already exhausted. I've worked like 14 hours, right? But then afterwards you're like, wow, I have the entire day. I could start, you know, 10 different projects right now if I wanted. And then you go and do it.
0: That's right. That's right. It's like, are you telling me if you're not going to work, you can't do something that generates some income for two hours a day that you actually enjoy? And I don't know, like things things like that, right? It's, uh, it's fascinating.
2: Oh yeah. And just the creative ways people have thought about, like I, I have, I know, um, one of my blogger friends, uh, he writes about how he generates passive income. Like he's done stuff like pick up stuff from the trash and then just sell it online. Like there's perfectly good furniture that people just throw out and then you list it online and people will buy like buy it for 60 bucks, a hundred bucks. It's just, you don't even need any skills. You just need time. That's it.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have one friend who's really into woodworking, for example. Right. And it's like, okay, well, if you're going to do that, eventually you're going to have all this stuff that you can't possibly fit in your house because you keep building things because it's fun for you. Well, you could sell Mm -hmm. some of that. Right. And there you go. And and, I mean, you're going to be doing woodworking anyway, because you love it. So you're going to run out of storage eventually. (laughs) So so sell that stuff. And while you're telling me you can't make a few grand, you know, selling some nice custom work that you did. I mean, come on.
2: Yeah. It doesn't need to be that much because you're actually using it to subsidize your, your um, passive income, right? You're not using it to cover everything. So the pressure is off, right? Yeah.
1: And uh, that's a great strategy. So, Sell stuff to homeowners.
0: Those guys will buy anything. <laughs> <laughs> Br- Bryce is stirring the pot, making this controversial. <laughs> oh
2: yeah, sure. He's, but you're He's so innocent,
0: right? That. You're so yeah. innocent. <laughs> really. innocent, like a lamb. <laughs> 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 That's awesome. Uh, so, okay, we talked about the yield shield a bit. Let's 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 dive into that a little bit more. You guys, um do use what you call the yield shield? Can you explain? what that is to everyone that hasn't been on your blog i'll, I'll link to it anyway in the show notes so everyone can read upon it because yeah. a lot of great detail on it but maybe just to give us a bit of a high level overview what it is
1: so the yield shield is a, is a name that we came up with to um to kind of make your portfolio a little bit more insulated from the swings of return risk so again to recap what you absolutely don't when markets plop what you the best thing to do is buy <laughs> The okay thing to do is hold and the worst thing to do is sell. So what you want to do is prevent yourself from selling. So when we retired, we shifted our portfolio a little bit away from a traditional indexing portfolio and then towards assets that yield a little bit more money. So when we say yield, it's a combination of bonds, which pay interest every month, um, as well as uh, stocks, which pay dividends uh, every month. So we ended up using assets like preferred shares, weeds, um, you know, corporate bonds, corporate bonds, dividend paying stocks. And we use these assets because they are generally kind of correlated to assets that we already own, but also pay a little bit more yield. So they may return a little bit less, but they pay more consistent income. So by doing that, and we talked a lot in a lot more detail on this in our blog, we took our, we were able to bring our The yield on our portfolio, which is the amount of cash that the portfolio generates every year, whether without selling anything, um, from about two, two and a half percent to about three, three and a half percent. So, as a result of that, we, uh, a lot more of our living expenses can come from assets that we simply, um, that we simply, uh, sorry, a lot more of our living expenses can simply come from cash that gets generated automatically in the portfolio without having to sell anything because um, when you when you sell something, when it's down, that's when you run into trouble. But if you just leave it, it'll eventually come back up. So once you are able to raise your what I call the yield shield, and in combination with your cash cushion, which is the amount of cash you leave outside your portfolio to make up any shortfall, you can actually survive many, many years of continuous down markets without having to sell anything. and in in essence, a uh, hunker down and wait for markets to turn back up again. So that's kind of the uh, idea of, of the strategy
2: that we use. Yeah, let me just add to that. Um, so the, the portfolio that we have is 60 40, 60 equity and then 40 fixed income. So the 60 equity part, we're actually leaving that because that hedges for inflation. And then the 40 fixed income part, we're replacing that with higher yielding, um, assets so that, uh, we don't actually have to sell. So that might, that will actually create a portfolio that is, uh, more volatile than just a 60, um, equity and then forty bond portfolio, but it does give us the ability to have a higher yield without forcing us to sell anything during a down market because that's that's like the worst possible thing you can do.
0: Mm, gotcha. And,
1: yeah. And the uh, and and just to just to clarify, the, this yield shield um, strategy that we're using is is not meant to be something that you hold long term. Um, we're only going to be we're only going to be uh, using higher yielding assets like preferred shares and stuff of for you know the first. Three to five years of our retirement, we're done. We've been into four now. So we're already starting to look into kind of bringing it down and going and then moving back into a more traditional index portfolio because the 4%, uh, the 4% um, rule was based off of simulations of an index portfolio. So we are deviating a little bit from the simulation to try to uh, mitigate the risk of being part of the 5% that fail. But longer term, we're going to come back into the fold of a more traditional index portfolio once we have pulled out of the danger zone. Of being uh, of the first
0: three to five years of retirement. Gotcha. And then I got the impression that a lot of the others in the FIRE community, so in the financial independence, retirement community, who have actually pulled off an early retirement, that they don't focus on the yield the way that you guys do. So, I mean, the most common strategy, at least from what I've seen, seems to be to not focus all that much on the yield and instead just to withdraw that 3.5 to 4% of their portfolio per year by selling off investments when needed, even if it is a down market, you know, and, and that's kind of what the, the Trinity study it proved that that is actually still sustainable. So what made you guys decide to create this yield shield strategy, instead of just going for the simpler 3.5 to 4% withdrawal rate, and just not worrying about the yield, because this is obviously, you know, more, more work, you're, you're holding different sort of assets, they have their own risk on top of it, right? So how, what was your reasoning there?
1: Well, I mean like I can't just say don't worry about it because Chrissy's gonna constantly worry about it.
2: <laughs> I'm like, going to wake up if it's gonna like go to if it. it's gonna go
1: down and I sure. have to sell and I, I, I can't just uh, like you know, well, I might be able to say, look at the spreadsheet. It's it's No, i, I would fine. just fine. Y'all sequence
2: of return risk very, very loud. <laughs> so
1: I needed something I, I needed something a little bit safer, uh because we know from we know from how indexing works. If you never sell during a downturn, mm-hmm. if the index always recovers. So um so th- this is our way of kind of making the 95% you know success rate a little bit more tilted in our favor. Uh But that's kind of, we wanted to make it safer.
2: Yeah, I think it's actually helped a lot in alleviating the stress. Because the thing is, people say, oh yeah, I'm going to be totally fine when the stock market goes down. I'm not going to sell. The thing is, you actually have to live through it to right. know that you're not going to be able to sell it, right? So a lot of it is actually like mental. Like it's a lot of okay. a, like emotional You know, trying to trying to actually like hold on to your emotions and not let it run away from you. So I think that um, by doing this, it actually has helped us a lot because we've actually tested it um, in 2015. And then again, like last year when it plummeted, because it really does help you sleep at night when you realize that the yield is covering your expenses and that you don't have to kind of, you know, have that mental breakdown of, oh, my God, I'm selling during a downturn. And it's the first five years of retirement. What if it doesn't work out? It really gives you that that like um, you know that peace of mind. Um, another thing is I this is what I realized after you retired, uh, you don't actually realize how useful geographic arbitrage is until you actually get out there and try it, right? Because I had I had read books from other travelers saying like, oh yeah, traveling is less expensive than staying home, but I was like a theoretical, right? So a lot of it is in the beginning. It is very very important to have that mindset, to have that peace of mind and not sell. And it's for everyone that says, oh, I'm going to be totally fine selling into a downturn. Try it. Try it and see. It it really makes a huge difference. And the first five years is key. So for us, in order to prevent us from doing something like that, and um, in order to give us enough time to be comfortable with retirement and testing it out, uh, that has actually proven to be very valuable for us to not sell anything during 2015 and last year when the stock market swamming.
1: Yeah. I know, I know a lot of other bloggers and knowing your personality, they are far more comfortable with risk than she is. Like, <laughs> yeah.
2: Like, to give you an example, like I, I emailed, uh, Pete, um, before we retired Money to Moustache. Money Mustache, Mr. Money Mustache. He's one of the biggest bloggers, um, within the fire space to ask him, you know, can you look at my numbers? Do you think it's okay for us to retire? And he's like, yeah, you guys are good to go. And then, and then I immediately had a panic attack after I gave my notice. So clearly I was not okay. Um, So I I sent him another follow-up panic email saying like, oh my God, I'm having a panic attack. Did you ever have to go through this? And he's like, nah, (laughs) like it really, you know, I I think part of it is because my, my background as well. Right. So it really varies from person to person. So you really have to know yourself and just looking at other people and saying, oh, they're, they're fine. They're not selling anything. I'm going to be just like that. You really have to live through it to, to actually know what it's like. I, I didn't know I was going to have a panic attack after, after I gave my notice, but it happened. It was totally fine two days later. But at the time, you know, if you compare that to uh, having a drop in the market during your first five years during the sequence of return risk, and you have a panic attack and you hit the sell button, you're screwed, right? Mm-hmm. That was just me, you know, calming myself because I already given, I had already given my notice. But if we didn't actually have the yield to live off, and I actually sold, that would have been horrible.
0: Right, right. Because cause, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe P, so Mr. Money Master, and uh, Jim Collins as well, they're more, those are the kind of the people I was thinking about when I asked that question, where they aren't, they don't really talk about yield much at all. They just say, look, this 3.54% rule, it's a sustainable thing. And so mm-hmm. you just sell that amount, you know, even in the downturns and you mathematically, historically, you would still be okay. I mean, is that, would, would you say that's kind of their, the way that they approach it or, or or do you think I'm misinterpreting?
1: Yes, they have far more they have far more faith in the statistics than Christy does.
2: <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Understand. So, okay, that makes total sense. Yeah.
0: No, sorry, Christy, what did you say? I cut you off there a bit.
2: Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm just saying that, yeah. So it really depend- varies from person to person. And there are some people that are cowboys and they can do- go like 100% equities or 90% equities. And they're just, yeah, it's fine. I, I don't worry about it. And it's going to be fine. I am not one of those people. <laughs> I need to have backup plan after backup plan after backup plan. And I need to actually be assured. So I think everybody needs to know what, you know, kind of know themselves and know their mindset. And mm-hmm. just because somebody else is more uh, risk taking than you doesn't mean that you should doing the same thing right so Understood. i find that um, yeah i find that absolutely that is very valid for people to follow um what you know the more risk adverse bloggers are doing uh but you really you really have to know yourself
0: Understood. That, that makes total sense. Yeah, if it's because I was approaching it purely from a mathematical standpoint, but you bring up a great point. How there's actually that whole psychological benefit, and are you freaking out when it drops thirty percent because we had you know have another two thousand eight or whatever the case may be? So, um, yeah, no. So that, that's that's really really interesting um, to, to kind of consider that component. Reminds me a bit of dividend investors, right? Because there's a lot of people who are who see themselves as dividend investors and they just want to have. Divid- they just want to generate the dividends by these blue chip companies and mm. live off the dividends, right? Uh, they're favorably taxed in Canada. There's, there's arguments for doing so. But mathematically, it's been proven that actually, you're better off not doing that strategy and just going with like a broad market index, for example. And because you want to look at total return, not the yield. But then, to your point, it's like, well, hold on. That's just you know, you're looking at the math side. There's also the whole psychological benefit where you want that cash, uh, you know, every mm-hmm. every quarter or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, um, very yeah. interesting, very interesting. That's and, and again,
1: uh, we're only been really doing this for like three or four, uh, three to five years. So, longer term, we're gonna longer term, we get the benefits of like you know, total return versus dividend. But in that danger zone, I want that safety in the danger zone.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. That makes all sense. Now, when you guys pick those different. ETFs, uh, like we'll talk about them in a sec, like the REITs, the preferred shares, the corporate bonds, the, the more dividend focused stocks, all, all those ETFs. Did you guys, before picking them, did you look at, well, how did those guys perform in 2008? You know, did their, uh, you know, did the income that they generated get cut? Did, how much did they drop in value? You know, what kind of analysis did you do when you sort of stress tested the strategy of yours? Sure. I
1: mean, like um, in Canada, uh, like, you know, preferred shares, uh, corporate bonds, like none of those actually got cut. Because uh, in Canada, the, um, even when 2008, our stock market was getting hammered, but because our banks weren't failing, like they were for the Americans, none of our, n- none of our banks went bankrupt, obviously. And as a result, none of our, none of our preferreds actually got cut during that time. And I just, uh, checked that now with CPD right before the call. But, uh, um, yeah, so we, so in picking those, um, in, in picking those, uh, particular ETS, we simply use the same approach that we did when picking Equity ETF, which is, you know, find me an index that covers this asset class and find the lowest cost ETF that covers that index. So, uh, so those are the ones that we came up with. They're all run by iShares, which is a pretty, uh, pretty good company, um, that an ETF company that runs both in Canada and the US. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of how we do it.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and then you guys did, um, so you, you did REITs, for example, what was your reasoning behind choosing REITs? And then you guys do 5% of your portfolio and that, what was your kind of thought process in incorporating those?
1: Well, REITs are, uh, REITs are actually um, a pretty good, like they, they kind of like act a little bit more like equities and bonds. So we swapped out a little bit of our TSX for um, allocations uh, to, to buy REITs instead. And for people who don't know what REIT is, it's a REIT is a real estate investment trust. Uh, and what it does is it owns big office buildings, like the ones like the big, you know, down, the big skyscrapers downtown. It owns, um, the, you know, um, Young and Dundas Center and, and, uh, Scotiabank Theater and like all these buildings that are like all over Canada and whatever rent that the companies inside pay to the building owner, uh, gets, gets distributed to you as a distribution. So, uh, for that, we just use the same approach there. We, you know, REITs are um, are one of the uh, a pretty safe income stream because you know when businesses fail, like their rent is the last thing that they that they attempt to cut. They'll rather they'd rather lay off employees rather than rather than stop paying the rent. So uh, that was also another asset that we used. And in picking the ETF, it was the same approach: find okay. the REIT index and find the lowest cost ETF that I could uh, that I could use access that.
0: Gotcha. And then what about preferred uh, Canadian preferred shares? You guys have quite a bit in there uh, on your side. You said you had about twenty percent weight in those what was your kind of thought process what made you comfortable doing preferred shares because you know if you anyone that kind of googles it right they're going to learn some negative things about preferred shares how did you guys get comfortable with them to the point where you're willing to put 20 percent in
1: well preferred shares as well as corporate bonds they're just kind of going up the risk spectrum so they are riskier forms of debt than you know rock solid canada government um uh, sorry government or canada bonds and in more uh and they are going to act more volatile than the same government bonds but as a result they do pay more yield. so if government bonds at the time that we were looking at was paying like two two and a half percent a corporate bond would pay around three and then a preferred share would pay around like five but um preferred shares again they didn't cut their dividends during 2008 2008 being once in a generation uh event um and if they if they survive that without kind of dividends, I have a pretty good confidence that they're gonna survive in
0: Gotcha. And then the last one uh to talk about was the, the select dividends you guys picked. What well, what was your reasoning behind that one?
1: The, the Canadian select dividends. dividends. The select dividend uh fund will, is kind of just a slice of um the TSX, which is kind of the more stable blue chip companies that pay dividends. Uh so um think like you know BMO, TD, RBC, uh, that kind of thing. So uh, they're just a, they, so that so that wasn't even just another asset class. That was just concentrating a little bit more of the of the overall TXX kind of uh, near the top uh, of the bigger, larger cap financial companies because I wanted the the yield a little bit. Understood. interestingly enough, interestingly enough uh, because they are uh, because uh, the because when you do that and you're picking the larger blue chip companies, um, they actually have a lower what's called a beta than the overall market and that they actually are tend to be less volatile than the overall market because smaller cap companies tend to swing more in price than the larger cap companies like the TVs and the CIDPs that are in the CSI. So that had a weird effect of actually increasing my yield while decreasing my knowledge.
0: Interesting. No, That's good. Thanks for sharing that. There's a lot of, um, you know, out of all the fire bloggers, I find they don't, a lot of them don't really touch too much on things like REITs and preferred shares and, you know, select dividend ETFs, things like that. So, so I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, kind of take us through it a bit. And, and, you know, I can link to it on your, uh, the part on your Perfect. blog too, cause I know you did specific posts about each one of those actually. So, uh, so I think for anybody that wants to get their, their feet wet with, with those, uh, that's probably a really, really good place to start. Um, so no, that, that's awesome. Thank you. Uh, and then how did you, we talked about this a bit, but how did you guys change your portfolio from pre-retirement to retirement, if at all?
1: Um, so, you know, funnily enough, well, so what you're supposed to do if you're really far away from retirement by that in like 10, 15 years, you're supposed to go, you know, 90, 10, equity, uh, 90 equity, 10 fixed income. And then you're supposed to, um, shift closer and closer, closer to say 60, 40 more balanced portfolio, uh, as you're going, as you get closer and closer to retirement. When we even started doing this, we were already three years away from retirement. So we started with 60, 40 and then just kind of stayed there. So, uh, after we, we after closer as we got to retirement, we shifted into, these kinds of yield shield, higher yielding assets to, to boost my yield a little bit before I actually hit the ground running. Uh, and now that we've been retired for a few years, we're actually planning on moving it back to a more traditional sixty forty portfolio. And um, but yeah, that's the only major change. Uh, that's the only major change that we did. And arguably, you don't even have to do that. You could, if you're comfortable taking, if you're comfortable relying on that math and just uh, and and just letting yourself sell into a down market with the with the faith that it will come back up statistically. You don't have to do that. You can just stick You can stick with bearing that you want. But I, that's what we
2: did. I think what you could do is, is stick with um, the indexing model that other people are doing but and also have a cash cushion. In the right. So you, oh, but you need a bigger cash cushion in that case, right? So if you're willing to work a bit longer and make a bigger cash cushion for, you know, let's say three years or five years during the first... Um, the sequence of return risk, then you, you could do that as well.
1: That's a good point. Uh, the, 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 whether you do what we, um, why we did the use field also was that it also allows you to reduce the amount of cash cushion that you uh, maintain outside the portfolio. So if you have a million dollar portfolio and your yield is 2%, which is what you'll get with like, you know, the TSX and, and, uh, and the S&P 500 and, and, bond right now, <coughs> and you spend $40,000, your yield is $220,000, but your, um, income needs are $40,000. So if you want to have a cash cushion, you need to have a cash cushion. One year's worth of uh, cash cushion is is equal to twenty thousand dollars. So if you want to have a cash cushion worth three years, um, that's going to be you're going to need to save up sixty thousand dollars in a savings account outside of the portfolio before you retire. That could take a while. But if you do this yield shield stuff, the cash cushion needs drop significantly. So if you if you did what what we did and brought your yield up to three and a half percent, now your yield is now thirty five thousand dollars, but your spending is $40,000, so your cash cushion for each year is only $5,000. So that, so in order to maintain the same amount of time in your cash cushion, which is three years, you only need $15,000 versus $60,000. And that could be, a, and, and if you're, you know, I know that when you're getting really close to retirement, you're really easy <laughs> to pull that trigger. And, and, and the idea of working one more year is probably not that appealing to you. So uh, that's one way of getting out of it, of saying, oh, I don't have to work. That much longer, just a few months, and then I'm good. Versus another year or
0: we'll whatever. That's awesome. I'm glad you guys mentioned that because, like you were talking about before, there are different. There's different levers you can pull in all in all of this whole fire thing, <laughs> and yeah. so fires you can pull in retirement. Fi- oh, sorry, levers you can pull uh, after you retired, Levers you can pull before you retire. Like in your case, okay, maybe you don't want to work an extra year, so let's let's tweak our portfolio so that it's a bit more pro yield. And then that way we don't have to, <laughs> that way you can escape the cub- a cubicle just a bit earlier, which is, uh, <laughs> which is good. Good for your, good for the mental health. Yeah. Yeah, you can
2: yeah. What I found is the last year before you retire is really hard. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. So he, he was basically, and we have this app that we kind of like meet each other for lunch. So I know where he is. And I was just checking to see where he was. And I'm like, dude, you're walking around in a park. Get back to work. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Several times, right? I'm yeah. like, there's still a year left. Get back to work.
1: Yeah,
2: what the heck are hard. you doing? Yeah, it's pretty tough. It was pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very hard last year trying to like ride that final
0: year. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it, do you find it? Isn't it interesting too? Where you walk around the office and then you see some people that are like trying so hard to get promoted, trying so oh, hard okay. to climb the ladder, yeah. and you you know yeah. like like they're there before you. They're there before you come into work. Their day when mm-hmm. they're there when you leave, and it's just so nice not to have to care about that anymore. I find oh, that, yeah. that it just it's such a nice feeling. Cause I, I, I remember, I remember being that person, uh, you know, straight out of university, right? Like you've got, you've got the, you get your nice like job, you know, and then you just want to climb the ladder and see how much money you can make. And it's just so nice to be able to say, I don't have to worry about that treadmill anymore. Uh, oh,
2: absolutely. Well, yeah. one of the other things I find is that it, it helps you act more like a human being. Uh, cause one of the things I was facing at my work was a lot of layoffs and mm. a lot of the work being outsourced, right? So you, you have people that are coming in um, and people worried about their jobs being outsourced. So there's a lot of infighting, right? And if you try to provide any information to the new newcomers coming in, then you're a trader. And then people start withholding information. And that's really bad for the company. That's really bad for the work that you're trying to do, right? So if you're actually FI, you can actually do the right thing, which is like, you know, what is it that I'm trying to do? And what is like a decent human thing to do rather than, you know, scream at other people and then have fights with them all day. Like, what is the point of that? Right. So I think FI really helps you make decisions that go along your values Mm -hmm. rather than do it because you like sell out because you have to do it for money because you have no choice.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. It's almost, it's, um, it sounds almost like instead of being in the survival mode where you're just okay. like, Oh, I just, I need that paycheck. I can't get fired. Oh, yeah. I can't get replaced. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that being maybe forced to do the, the, pol- uh, the kind of the political maneuvering or whatever you want to call it yeah. instead to yeah. say, let's actually do the human thing. <laughs> uh, Cause that's stressful too. Right. Yeah.
2: yeah. I've seen like people throw other people under the bus because they want to get a promotion and it's really disheartening because I'm like, yeah. do you want, is that what you want to be known for? Like you want your gravestone to say, got a promotion by destroying like a hundred people's lives. Like, right. So why would you, right? what was yeah. the point?
0: For sure. For sure. And then, you know, let's say, you know, we're talking about kind of worst case scenarios before. Let's say we did have uh, like a 40% downturn or something, you know, significant, like another 2008. What would you guys do in that situation? I've, I've heard this answer before. And I, I love, I love, I love your answer. So I want everyone to hear it. Uh, but yeah, let, t- tell me what you would, what you would do.
1: <laughs> well, uh, you know, obviously we would execute on the yield field, uh, plan and, uh, as well as end up using our cash cushion, but at the end of the day, um, you know, view arbitrage is the answer. And we have a saying that we, we like to tell each other: is if shit hits the fan, we're going to Thailand," which is, uh, <laughs> which, is which means which means we're going to take a flight uh, to Thailand, sit on a beach, and then just ignore the rest of it, and then just be able and just live on half of the amount of money that we would live on while being on a beach and away from you know the community. So that's you know my worst case scenario is sitting on a beach drinking my time. So not a bad life, huh? for sure. <laughs>
0: that's awesome. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And then, um, yeah, I, I'm guessing you guys wouldn't really change your portfolio or anything like that during that time, because you've already set up that yield shield there, you have that cash cushion as well. So you're basically just utilizing that uh, without changing anything fundamental in your portfolio. Would that be accurate to say?
1: Oh, yeah, that's actually the worst thing to do, you know, to change in the to make yeah. a major portfolio in the middle of that in the middle of a class like that. No, you set up, you set up everything on autopilot and then you go off to the beach.
0: Gotcha. And then one thing as well, I mean, I've heard some people kind of make this argument where, okay, well, if we did have another 2008, you can expect your yields to go down as well, right? Because companies are making less profits. They're issuing less dividends, for example. What if some What if some of them started defaulting, things of that nature? So maybe now some of your bonds are taking a hit too. Uh, what, how do you deal with that objection or concern? Well, I mean, like uh,
1: if... If if bonds start defaulting or or preferred shares are defaulting, you know the stock market is also plummeting as well. So hiding so hiding in the stock market doesn't really help either. But even if uh, even if yield starts plummeting or yield starts getting hit, uh, we still have the cash cushion. That's our second backup plan, and we still have the ability to use geographic arbitrage.
0: Right. Uh,
1: so that's our third backup plan. So there's always something that you can do to make the numbers work, and all you have to do is just just minimize, you know minimize or ideally eliminate selling anything and just wait because that approach worked in 2008. If you just ignored the noise and you waited, it all came back up and then all went higher. So as long as you can avoid selling during that time and <laughs> whatever it takes, either taking cash from your cash position or just sitting, you know, sitting on a beach in Thailand or Vietnam or whatever, um, that's what you do. And and then eventually you just wait until it comes back up and then you
2: win. Yeah. So this is why we like to have that 3 prong approach and right. backup. back up ABC. So if, you know, if first we rely on the yield, right, and if the yield gets cut, then we have the cash cushion. And if we deplete the cash cushion, then we move to Thailand, right? Or we can go to Portugal, or we can go to Mexico, there's many, many places in which the cost of living is just a fraction of how much it costs to live in North America. Um, And then for other people, maybe they have side income, right? They have side gigs, and that could be like their fourth lever. So, um, the, the key is to not just throw up your hands and say, I don't know what to do. I just never quit my job. Guess what? 2008, you're not going to have a job. <laughs> so that's not really something that people should really rely on. I much rather be financially independent and have three or four different backup plans when shit hits the fan, than sitting at my cub- cubicle, like praying to God that I don't get let go.
0: Right. Yeah. Cause actually the working isn't actually a safe root either because that's when people get fired as well. Right. So yeah, yeah
2: I've, seen, I've seen my coworkers get laid off uh, for no reason other than the fact that, you know what, they're not meeting the targets this year. That's it. They're still making, the company is still making money. They're just not making the targets. So mm-hmm. somebody's got to go. Right. Yeah. And if you didn't save enough money to become financially independent, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people are way overestimating how secure a job is these days. Right, you can't just expect to work at the same company until you're 65 and for them to pay you a pension and you're done with life. That's that's the reality has changed and we don't have that security anymore.
0: For sure, yeah. no, hundred percent. And I would say too, I mean, it even if you are hitting your targets or your objectives or whatever, you could still get fired. I remember when I was a kid, that or you know, like early career person, I thought, well, as long as I do a great job. I'm going to have um, a job. No problem. Yeah. There, there's no way I could get fired as long as I'm you know, doing everything my boss is asking me, et cetera. And then I remember it was my first job out of university. And this was like around 2008 and an entire floor of people at a company got fired. An entire floor got wiped out. Right. And it's like, yeah. it's, it's not that all of the, the whole floor was not hitting their targets or not hitting their objectives. It was just, look, uh, basically, you know, it was a company owned internet, like from the US, and they said, you know what, we're going to switch our strategy, we're going to do something different now, I guess this thing wasn't making them enough money or whatever. And so they just cut the whole floor, right. And then, you know, some people, so so that they kind of just to your point about the the job thing isn't actually as safe, as as safe as people think it is. Uh, Because even if you do everything right, you could still get fired.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, you know, your wife worked at Blackberry, so she probably was Yes, part of that exac-
0: exactly, that, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So,
2: I
1: mean, like, people kind of,
2: you know. Through uh, no fault of your own, right? no
1: fault of
0: own. 100%, yeah. Uh,
1: and uh, people keep, you know, there's this misconception that fire is this, oh, this crazy, kooky idea that's dangerous, and it's only for people who want, who are lazy and don't want to work. It's like No, no, no. Fire is the only way to make yourself safe from layoffs forever. Like, mm-hmm. the right. sooner you become this, when you start working, you become addicted and as soon as, especially if you buy a house and you get a mortgage, you become addicted to that debt. Uh, sorry, you get it. You become addicted to that salary. And if someone takes that salary away from you at that point, oh boy, that, that does not feel good. But if you do the fire thing, uh, you, you are kind of breaking the addiction from your salary and nothing can ever hurt you. A, a layoff can never hurt you ever again. And so wh- yeah. it's like, it's not even a, a, like a luxury, like crazy, kooky idea or risky thing that we're doing here. I'd say that FIRE is a far safer way of managing your finances than what most people do, which is just buy a house, go into a bunch of debt, and hope for the best.
2: Yeah, and one of the things I like to remind people, um, we write about this on the blog, we write about this on the book, is that the financial independence part of FIRE is mandatory, and the retirement part is optional. If you like your job, no one is saying you have to quit your job. You can continue working. But having that peace of mind, that financial independence part, means that you are immune you are invincible to layoffs. you don't have to worry about it if all of a sudden your work changes from something you love to something you hate i've had that happen to me um you don't have to worry about it if like you said all of a sudden the company decides you know what the entire floor is gone we're doing a different strategy now to that or they decide to outsource a whole bunch of people like none of those things are within your control and then people are now talking about like oh no what if the robots are going to come to replace our jobs you are financially (laughs) independent you don't have to worry about that right so it really is about peace of mind and security. It's not about, oh, let's just all be lazy and not work anymore. But It's a choice. It's totally up to you whether you want to keep working or not.
0: For sure. And guys, so, so your blog, Millennial Revolution, it's easily one of my favorite blogs. You know, How is your book different than the blog? Where can everybody go to pick up your book? And where can we learn more from you guys?
2: Oh, thank you so much for the compliment. Um, okay, so the book has been written in a way that, um, basically, because what happens when you read a blog is like, you know, it, it's kind of like attending a fitness class. And it's like, every time you go in, it's a different session. And then you miss something from last class, or you, you don't really know where you are, right. So reading a blog, is like all the materials everywhere, you have to like dig through it. Our book pulls everything together and t- ties it together in a story. Um, and giving the lessons like stories that we've never written on the blog, um, about how, like how to actually see money and understand investing in a series of uh, lessons that when you put together and you read the entire book, it gives you the entire picture of how to become financially independent.
1: Yeah, at this point on our blog, uh, I think we have some like 500 articles. We yeah, almost. So, gonna, so if somebody that's just coming in, it's going to take a long time for them to understand everything because the material was developed over a number of years. The book is kind of a one stop shop, like condensed version of all that kind of stuff with the book. And you if you buy the book and you read that, that's all you need to do to learn everything you need to know about fire about how to implement it and how to retire.
2: Yeah. We also have interviews with, um, experts like Mr. Money Mustache and, um, people from, uh, Go Curry Cracker, Justin, a whole bunch of other people, as well as, um, leaders of the, uh, world traveling, uh, community. Cause I, I, talk about, sorry, world, world schoolers, um, community, which I talk about briefly on the blog, but I don't actually dive into it. I haven't really interviewed any of them. So the book actually gives you a lot of resources on what, what you want to do. Because a lot of people ask me, like, what are you going to do when you have kids? Can you travel forever? This lifestyle is not sustainable. And so we do a lot of research into what if you have kids and how does that affect your finances and how does that affect this lifestyle going forward? So let's interview the experts and ask them.
0: That's awesome. That's wonderful. That's Thank you so much for coming on. This was so much fun.
2: Thank you so much for having, thank you so much for having us. And congrats on uh, quitting and hitting your FI number.
0: <laughs> thanks so much guys all right thanks for tuning into the show don't forget about the free giveaway for your chance to win a copy of Christie's and bryce's new book quit like a millionaire you can sign up for the giveaway for free by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash giveaway all one word that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash giveaway also, don't forget to get your free guide on the top ETFs in Canada where I go into detail on what I invest in and why. And to get that, just sign up for a free savings account with the bank that I use, EQ Bank, where they have one of the highest interest rates that I've been able to find in Canada. It's an ongoing high interest rate. Sometimes even it's even more than double what other banks are offering. Plus, you get free unlimited Interact e-transfers, which is super convenient for sending money. So to get the free guide, just sign up for EQ Savings Plus account using the link BUILD wealthcanadaca slash eq. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash the letter e and the letter q. Then send me any confirmation email that you get from them to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca and I'll email you the full guide. All right. So thanks again for supporting the show in that way. Thank you for tuning in as well. Have a great week. I hope you're having a great summer and talk to you soon.
1: Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.